75 years ago, months after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the federal government opened up 10 concentration camps to warehouse every one of the 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Most people believe that such a thing should never happen again in the United States to any group, racial, ethnic, religious, or otherwise. I'm Eric Muller, and I think the best way to make sure something doesn't happen again is to know what the thing was that actually happened. That's what this podcast does. It tells stories based on actual events in the lives of real people uprooted from their homes and forced to live in America's concentration camps, not because of anything they had done, but simply because of who they were. I call it Scapegoat Cities. In creating this episode, I made one key change that I wanted to be sure you knew about. I shifted the feet of construction, and I use the term feet loosely, from the Poston Relocation Center in Arizona, where it actually occurred, to the Heart Mountain Relocation Center in Wyoming. I did this because I wanted the episode to illustrate the impacts that the construction of a camp could have on nearby white communities. That part of the history was easier for me to illustrate in Wyoming. Everything you'll hear about what the building of Heart Mountain meant for nearby Cody, Wyoming, is true. There were days when Ned Sanderson liked to take a drink, and days when he needed to. He liked to drink on good days when his wallet was full of cash and he could stand his friends a round or two at the bar at the Irma Hotel. He hadn't had a lot of those days since the war started, but then the feds announced that they were going to put a camp for Japanese up on the old Matlar property on the bench above the Shoshone River just east of Heart Mountain. And times went from bad to good very fast, not just for Ned, but for most everyone there in the town of Cody, Wyoming, just to the south of where the camp was going in, and in the town of Powell, just to the north. The Powell Tribune had it right in its big headline the other day. 10,000 is a lot of Japanese, it said, in the biggest typeface they'd seen since the paper announced Pearl Harbor. To be honest, 10,000 wasn't just a lot of Japanese, it was a lot of anyone up there in northwest Wyoming. Cody and Powell together only had about 4,500 residents, at least until hundreds and hundreds of construction workers started swarming in from all over the region to build the camp. With 10,000 Japanese people fenced in up there, the camp was set to become the state's third largest city pretty much overnight. Only Casper and Cheyenne had more. This was going to take some getting used to for the residents of Cody and Powell. They were the Mountain West and proud of it. Even the names of their towns were Western icons. Powell was named for John Wesley Powell, the first white man to climb Long's Peak down in Colorado, and the first to run the rapids of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in little wooden dories, if you can believe it. And the man did it with just one arm since the other one got shot off in the Civil War. Cody got its name from its founder, Buffalo Bill Cody who pretty much invented the American West as people around the world knew it. A land of cowboys and Indians and bison and sagebrush and not much else. They liked their spaces wide open. They tolerated the tourists who came through in the summers on their way to Yellowstone National Park and who would stop in town to take in the Stampede Rodeo that had been running since 1919, just a few years after Buffalo Bill staged his last Wild West show. But they liked it when fall set in and the tourists went home, 
and they had the land to themselves again. So 10,000 Japanese were going to take some adjusting to, even if they were all locked up behind barbed wire fences, which the governor was promising they would be. Nobody was sure how they were going to fit all of those people up on that bench beneath Hart Mountain, but Ned was a foreman on the barrack construction project, and for him it had come into view pretty clearly, especially now that it was early August of 1942 and they were almost finished. They were at the tail end of building hundreds of barracks, 468 of them to be exact, and about 40 mess halls, and the same number of latrines and laundry buildings and recreation halls to go along with them, all set up in 20 rectangular blocks, kind of like city blocks, covering about 740 acres. Each barrack was 120 feet long and 20 feet across, sectioned with thin interior walls into six separate units ranging from 16 to 24 feet long. 2,800 rooms, 10,000 people. Just under four people per room on average. That's how they were going to fit them all in up there. The Powell paper referred to it as Little Tokyo, and that was a good line. But to Ned Sanderson's eyes, it wasn't shaping up anything like how he imagined Tokyo. It looked to him like an army base, or with the guard towers that were going up, maybe a combination of an army base and a concentration camp. But it was like Tokyo in one sense. It was a city, a genuine city. And it needed all of the complicated stuff a city needs electrical power, lines to deliver it, plumbing, sewer lines, septic systems, streets, a hospital, school buildings, and countless other facilities, milk for the little kids, mortuary services for people at the other end of the line, and all manner of services for everyone in between. When the dimensions of the camp project sank in, people made fewer jokes about the people they called their new yellow neighbors because suddenly they were starting to see green and lots of it. Since Uncle Sam had launched the project back in early June, more than 2,000 workers had found jobs there. Some of them were locals, but hundreds and hundreds had come from the region and even beyond, from Montana and Idaho and the Dakotas, drawn by the promise of good wages and regular work for the summer. This created a housing crisis in Cody and Powell, the Cody Enterprise said in an editorial that it was the patriotic duty of every resident to pitch in, and before long every hotel room and campground cabin was occupied, and people were renting out houses, spare bedrooms, attics, just about any vacant space with a roof over it. As for rent, owners could pretty much name their price. Wages out at the camp for even semi-skilled work ranged as high as a buck fifty an hour, which was very good money indeed, especially for this region. So workers had money for rent, and then some. They spent lavishly on clothes and groceries and transportation and meals in restaurants, and on an occasional beverage or two, or three. Cody and Powell were boom towns, and the liquor flowed at the rougher bars and saloons around town, as well as the high-end Irma Hotel, Buffalo Bill's Hotel, the one he named for his daughter, where Ned Sanderson liked to drink on these many good days, these flush days, rounds of beer and gin and whiskey at the ornate Cherrywood Bar that had been a gift to the gunslinging hotel owner from none other than Queen Victoria. But now it was August, and things up at the camp had taken a frenzied pace. The Japanese would be arriving soon, any day now, they were told, and the barracks weren't finished. Most of them were up, 
and all over camp the tar paper crews were hammering skins onto the sides of buildings. Windows and doors were being hung, electricians were dangling a single bulb from the ceiling of each room, and crews were installing each room's heavy coal-burning stove. But Ned was the foreman for a block of 20 barracks that had lagged behind schedule pretty badly. Structures stood on only four of the 20 mostly level wooden platforms that had been spaced out in two long rows over the slightly uneven terrain. The other 16 rectangles were bare. Nothing rose above them, no walls, no ceilings, no roofs. Piles of unfinished lumber stood around, a few thousand of the more than 13 million board feet that had already gone into the construction of the camp. The 120-foot-long prefabricated walls were piled nearby, two for each barrack, and cranes stood at the ready to hoist peaked wall units into place at either end. Ample materials were on hand for the roofing crews to clamber into place once there were sturdy joists down below to keep the walls upright. Everything was ready to get this residential block built. They just needed to get the work done. Fast. Ned's boss wanted the work done by noon. He didn't say why. Ned had been at this for weeks now, and he knew his men. He knew how long it took them to get even one of these barracks standing if he left them to their own devices and turned a blind eye from the dallying and the shenanigans, the extended water breaks in the hot August sun. And he knew they had a full day's work facing them to build this block at that pace. Usually he didn't mind spending a little more of the government's money for a little less work. Uncle Sam was going to pay the bills no matter what, but the usual pace was not going to do today. He needed to motivate his men, or he'd have some answering to do come lunchtime. Ned was flush with cash, and he didn't mind spreading it around a little to get this last job done, so he decided to set the men in a friendly competition with a round of beers at the Irma as the reward for the fastest crew. Word got out quickly, and soon the block was swarming with men, carpenters, roofers, laborers, pretty much anybody who could swing a hammer. Big teams formed near the bare wooden platform foundations, and laborers dragged over all of the materials they'd need, from the green wood wall units, to the joists, to the nails, to the two-by-fours. By 10.30, they were ready to go. Ned looked at his watch and gave them the signal to start. Instantly, the block went from silent to a deafening chaos of sound and motion. Men screamed orders at each other. They formed huge long lines to hoist walls and get them standing while others wedged struts in to keep them upright, while others secured them in a vertical position, or uh, as close to vertical as time allowed. Strong men pounded nails in place with just a couple of strokes, moving on even if the angle was a little bit off, or the line wasn't quite true, or the gap wasn't quite sealed. Roofers scampered up ladders to do their work, while the walls beneath them were still being finished. Ned had never seen anything like this, such furious focus. The only time the men broke their concentration was to taunt another team about how far behind they were and how good those beers were going to taste later at the Irma and what a shame it was that they weren't going to get any. Every time a barrack wall lurched vertical in one spot, another team howled and set to work even faster. And then suddenly, strangely, silence fell. Workers looked around and saw 16 barracks standing where there had been none. They turned to Ned with his watch. 22 minutes, Ned said. Silence. Ned said it again. 22 minutes. You bastards just built 16 barracks in 22 minutes. More stunned silence. 
until Ned told them that he'd be buying around for everyone that night at the Irma, not just the fastest team. That got them all whooping and cheering. This had to be a record. There was just no way that anyone at any of the nine other camps had built barracks faster than this. Men on the roofs threw wood shavings in the air and shook their fists like champions. The guys on the ground with hammers pounded on wood piles so loud that it sounded like some sort of eruption. Ned's boss had been watching the whole thing. He clapped Ned on the back and shook his shoulders and said he'd never seen anything like it. After lunch, the crews spent some time going back over their work, trying to fix the most glaring flaws. You build 16 buildings in 22 minutes, and let's just say there are going to be some problems. Beams off level and gaps in corners and under the eaves. They did what they could, and then it was quitting time. They were still on a high. Like a winning football team, they strutted down the hill toward the camp's gate in one huge group, still laughing and bragging and yelling that the bars down in Cody better be ready for a big night. Ned followed them alone, 30 paces back, lost in thought about how much it was going to set him back to buy every one of this mob of beer. Maybe he'd been a little rash when he dangled that in front of him, but hell, it worked. The barracks weren't pretty, but they were standing, and they were on time. The young kid startled him, half jogging the wrong way up toward the camp instead of out toward the Powell Highway. Leather jacket, dungarees, dragging an overstuffed duffel and with a satchel strapped across his chest. Japanese face, maybe 16, old enough to be rushing out ahead of his parents instead of sticking with them. A Japanese man and a Japanese woman, dressed like they were going to church and loaded down with luggage. A little girl, must have been the boy's kid's sister, stuck close to their mother with a hat box in one hand and some sort of stuffed animal in the other. Ned looked up past them and saw the train at the little depot. He hadn't noticed that until now. A couple hundred people were clustered by the tracks, loading luggage and themselves onto trucks. MPs were helping with the heaviest bags. Some of the families, like the one in front of him, had decided to do it on foot instead of waiting for the truck. The boy stopped and wheeled around to his parents. He was out of breath and he seemed excited. Come on, let's keep going, he yelled at them. If we're the first ones up there, maybe we can grab the best apartment. Ned looked from the boy to his parents. They locked eyes, but just for a moment because Ned couldn't take it and quickly turned his eyes downward and kept walking. He walked and walked past a few more families and a couple of older guys moving up alone toward the barracks. He walked until he got to his car, and he sat there for a good long while before turning the key and steering out onto the highway and down towards Cody and the bar at the Irma Hotel. There were days when Ned Sanderson liked to take a drink, and days when he needed to. This was a day he needed to. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride. Thanks for listening to this episode of Scapegoat Cities. If you like what you hear, let me know by leaving a comment at scapegoatcities.org. Or better yet, let your friends and family know on Twitter or Facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you like. 
maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. I'm Eric Muller, and again, thanks for listening. Let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in.